Hello and welcome to the All 80s Movies Podcast, the podcast where we talk about the blockbusters, the flops, and everything in between from one of the freshest decades for movies, the 1980s. I'm your host, Bill Banton, and along with me on this journey, revisiting 80s movies, is my co-host, Jason Masek. Hello, Jason. I've run out of time. I've lost it all. So, I can't work fast enough to catch up. I can't run fast enough to catch up. The only thing that catches me up is doing my magic act. But it ends, you know? It will end. That's right, listeners. We are discussing, with spoilers aplenty, the 1981 crime drama Thief, starring James Caan and Tuesday Weld. Written and directed by Michael Mann, this movie is rated R with a running time of two hours and three minutes. Thief is based on the 1975 book The Home Invaders, Confessions of a Cat Burglar by Frank Hoemer. Hopefully I'm saying that name right. Close enough. So, what is this movie about? What's on the box? If you grew up in the 1980s and went to your local video store to rent this movie, you would find this description on the back of the VHS box. It is What's on the Box. Take it away, Jason. It was supposed to be the Master Safe Cracker's last heist. A perfect million-dollar farewell to a dangerous double life. James Kahn is at his very best as the tough, wisecracking ex-con trapped between the mob and the police with nowhere to turn. Michael Mann, the genius behind the hit television series Miami Vice and Crime Story, wrote and directed this taut, visually dazzling action drama. Filmed on rain-slicked Chicago streets, Thief captures this chilling suspense of the safe-cracking world with incredibly detailed authenticity. Rolling Stone magazine describes Mann's dialogue as having the gutter pungency of a wood alcohol cocktail. In a compelling performance, Tuesday Weld co-stars as the woman for whose sake the thief attempts his final job. Country superstar Willie Nelson plays the old man who taught him his trade. And former Saturday Night Live regular James Belushi portrays his best friend. A suspenseful electronic score by Tangerine Dream adds the perfect hard-driving accompaniment to this ahead-of-its-time caper film. Newsweek says, Thief envelops you in its tough, doom-laden grip and never lets go. Thief. Thief. So that was what's on the box. How are we doing tonight, Jason? Oh, we're doing great, Bill Bant, because we're talking about our second Michael Mann film on this podcast. Is that correct? That is correct. First one, of course, being Manhunter. Can't get enough of Michael Mann, so... I'm always looking forward to doing one of his films, and here we are again. So I'm excited. Let's get into it. Let's break it down. All right. Let's move on to earliest memories. Jason, what are your earliest memories of Thief? Well, to be honest, Bill Band, I don't really have much in the way of earliest memories of this particular film or the viewing of this particular film. What I do remember is that in college, I felt if I were to continue calling myself a true Michael Mann fan... I had to watch this film, of course. As listeners of this podcast may already know, Bill and I attended the University of Miami, Florida Film School in the early to mid-90s. And as regular listeners will most definitely know, Bill and I are huge fans of the 80s iconic trend-setting television crime action series, Miami Vice, which was executive produced by Michael Mann. Bill and I were even involved with the making of a ridiculous Miami Vice short video with myself playing Crockett and... Bill Bant, what role did you play in the film? I did uh, Lieutenant Castillo. Okay, that's right. <laughs> but we were showing off our fandom and making this short video film. And of course, there was a freeze frame at the end in true Michael Mann style. And there was me yelling, no! 
at the end and the whole kit and caboodle. Regardless, we were Michael Mann fans. That's what I'm saying. Now, at the time we attended college, I only knew that Mann had been involved with the television crime shows. And I was certainly a fan of the film Manhunter, which he directed and we covered on this podcast. And then, of course, I and others ran to the theater to see The Last of the Mohicans, also directed by Michael Mann, which was released in 1992. But again, I felt I needed to do my due diligence and at least go back to check out some of his earlier work. Thus, I decided to sit down and watch his feature film directorial debut, Thief, from 1981. I was not familiar with, nor did I ever see his television directorial debut film, Jericho Mile, from 1979, and I'd never heard of his film, The Keep which was also from the year 1983. So I landed on Thief. That was the one for me. That was the early film of his I was going to study. Thus, I remember putting this movie on. I remember some of the beginning. I remember being familiar with James Caan from The Godfather. And I remember feeling that this film was a bit slow. And that's it. I barely remember anything else. And upon this rewatch, I was confirmed or that was confirmed. I just don't recall that much. And I'm not sure I ever finished watching this movie back in college. Now I'm second guessing myself. I could have sworn I did. But anyway, that's all I got for now. What are your earliest memories of Thief? I think in the same vein as you, the only reason I eventually saw Thief was because it was done by Michael Mann, Miami Vice. And that episode is not ridiculous that we recorded, by the way. It's a masterpiece <laughs> on some VHS tape somewhere. God knows where. Somebody has it. Someday it may be released. So I think I probably saw Thief for the first time on television. That's where I caught it. And I really didn't remember that much. But then I watched it again about a decade ago. I rented it off of Netflix just because I didn't remember it. And I just wanted to watch it again. So this is the third time I've seen it. And I'll be honest, too, even after the second time, I didn't remember too much about it. But I do remember watching it all these years later, just like, oh, crap. Yeah, that's such and such from Crime Story. Oh, yeah. Holy crap. I didn't realize James Belushi was in this. I totally forgot about that. Michael Mann likes to use the same actors over again. So there's a lot of, oh, I've seen him in another Mann production. So that was really the big takeaway I got from it, I think, watching it the second time. But yeah, like you, I don't remember that much. It was one of those I should watch all of Man's work because I love Miami Vice so much. And I'm a big fan of Manhunter also, Last of Mohicans. Pretty much everything he's done, it's a must watch. And since this is the first, you got to start at the beginning. And this is where it all started. Absolutely. Great stuff, Bill Bant, as always. And that's the thing is that we were literally students of film. We were going to film school and we're studying these filmmakers. And who are we going to study first? But the, the filmmakers we loved at that time, in that moment. And Michael Mann was huge for us. I mean, I have to admit, choosing to go to the University of Miami had a lot to do with the show Miami Vice. There was such a um, an allure to the whole world, the way that he shot that, or the way that I should say Miami Vice was shot. I have to give credit to all those. I mean, you know, Michael Mann didn't create the show. He didn't uh, write, you know, the story, the initial idea wasn't his, but he, I mean, he crafted the whole show and the look of the show and and made Miami look a certain way that was extremely appealing. It was very sexy. It was very exciting. The colors and the neon and the art deco of the the architecture, et cetera, of Miami. And that was just, when I got there, you, I could feel it, even though it was a few years after the television series had concluded. However, I have to admit, you know, and that's, and Miami Vice is one of the many, many reasons why I got into film in the first place. 
I wanted to do what Michael Mann was doing. And so, you know, we study these filmmakers and the auteurs and we want to see their beginnings. Can you see where they were and where they were about to go by looking at their earlier work? Of course you can. So yeah, it just made sense that we would watch this in film school in Miami. <laughs> so yeah, man, um, I thought there was something else you said in there. Maybe I'll remember to touch upon it later. Oh, that was the other thing. I totally agree with you. And I'll just jump into my initial thoughts, uh, if that's all right, Bill Bant. Go for it. You nailed it. I was surprised and had completely forgotten about some of the co-stars in this film, including James Belushi, who's great. And there are a lot of, and I'm going to just step a little bit on our Hey, It's That Actor segment by simply saying there are a lot of Hey, that It's That Actors in this movie. Oh, yeah, a ton. I'm not going to give away our Hey, It's That Actor. I'm just saying... You just, there's a lot of recognizable faces in this film and you're like, okay, here we go. This totally makes sense. Michael Mann likes these actors. He likes to work with these people. And that's just one of those things that you see early on here in this movie or notice right away. So getting into my initial thoughts. Yeah, uh, well, that's one of them. But here we go, Bill Bant. This movie is cool, man. This movie is rough and tough. This movie is dark. This movie is stark. This movie is style. This movie is the blueprint for everything Michael Mann from 1981 forward. I loved it upon this so-called rewatch. I kind of called this actually muted Michael Mann, not because he doesn't have a voice by any means. It's more about the colors and the general look and feel. It's as if Michael Mann just hasn't fully blossomed yet. He's not fully alive yet, but it's there. It's all there, especially if you're looking for it. Michael Mann's directorial debut, Thief. I should say feature film directorial debut. He also wrote it, as Bill Bant mentioned, inspired by uh, Frank Hohammer's novel, The Home Invaders, which is also the same title of one of our favorite Miami Vice episodes. Hell yeah. The Home Invaders. Great episode. This film's produced by Jerry Bruckheimer and James Kahn's brother, Ronnie Kahn. You get a soundtrack by Tangerine Dream. What else do you want, folks? It's the 80s. It's Michael Mann. It's incredible. Funny enough, this film has a total running time of two hours and four minutes. But for me, it was just smooth sailing the entire time. I was in it the whole way. It did not feel like two hours for me. Lady and gentlemen listeners, these are some of the reasons why I love this kind of movie. A heist movie. A movie about a safe cracker. It starts with the occupation itself, the allure of it, the seductive nature, the excitement, the rush, the sexiness, the high stakes, the huge payout. In heist movies, you're always rooting for the criminal, someone who's clearly morally corrupt, but you always want them to get away with it because in a good heist movie, you always end up empathizing with the protagonist, in this case, master safe cracker Frank, played by James Caan. Now, in heist movies, for me, it's all about the details, of course, the preparation, the procedure. How are they going to do it? And then how are they going to get away with it? I always want to know more about this world, man. What are the tools? How do you get the tools? How do you learn the trade? Let's examine the blueprints of the building of the safe. There's recruiting the team. Who are the team members, the craftsmen? What are their specific jobs? For example, in this, we have the guy in the car in the alley with the police radio. We have James Belushi playing the role of Barry, who's like the electrician and disables the alarm systems. So much of it is about the planning. And it's if one thing goes wrong, the whole thing can crumble like a house of cards and you're going to go to jail for a long, long time. And there's also like the countdown to the day of the job, which is always building tension. It's all great to me. It's all gravy. By the way, I said craftsman because this is a craft. It is a trade. It is an art form that has to be learned. That being 
basic robbery, like pulling off a heist, safe cracking. And we even have a mentor in this film in the form of Willie Nelson playing David Okla. And there are subtleties and nuances and styles to this trade that we've seen in so many different movies. This is a great Chicago movie, by the way. I'm always biased toward a uh, Chicago movie. James Kahn, man, one of our legendary tough guys who passed away in 2022, known up to this point for Brian's song, The Godfather, Slither, The Gambler, Funny Lady, Rollerball, The Killer Elite. This film is unequivocally James Kahn's movie. He is almost in every single scene. We actually do not get a lot of depth from our supporting cast, and it's a choice. I'm okay with it. We have Tuesday Weld playing the love interest, Jesse, James Belushi, as we've mentioned, Willie Nelson, and we don't really know shit about them except in relation to Frank, James Kahn. We don't see them living their own lives. It's a singular story about a singular character for the most, well, for the most part. Anyway, James Kahn is just an old school man's man, rough and tumble, take charge, rough around the edges. He has the kind of presence when he walks in the room, you don't want to fuck with that guy. It's a combination of his command, body language, voice, eyes that say, I'm living a bit on the edge. Don't push me. I could pull a gun or snap your neck in an instant. That's James Caan. He's that kind of guy who just slap you around and then actually just slap you into submission. And a lot of that for me comes from his characterization in Godfather as Sonny Corleone when he was beating the crap out of Carlo in the street with a garbage can. By the way, stepping on our trivia segment, in the hospital scene in this film, Thief, James Caan decided to stare coldly at uh, the actor who plays the doctor, and this really frightened that act, the actor, and his reaction to Khan in the scene is genuine. That's how intimidating James Khan was. Now, just talking about Michael Mann laying out the blueprint for his TV shows and films to come, the characterization of Frank, the lone wolf, being good at his job, it's all he knows. At one point, he's in, he was institutionalized, and he's somewhat still institutionalized in his mind. A character that eventually no longer wants to be alone, but is fatally destined to always return to what he is, which is a career criminal. Even if he doesn't return to the lifestyle, the world will draw him back in. There is no escape. It's a tragedy. We see time and time again in man's films, whether it be the cop or the criminal character, it's the same type of character like Sonny Crockett in Miami Vice, Will Graham in Manhunter, Neil McCauley in Heat, Vincent Hanna in Heat, or Vincent, the Tom Cruise character in Collateral. The characters are proficient, efficient, highly skilled, highly intelligent, and inseparable from their work. They have a fantasy of another life, of an escape route to another life, but it's never the reality. There's always a much greater chance that they will die doing the only thing they know how to do, which is either take down the bad guy or take down scores. Lastly, as a result, the man, this, it's a strange sensation watching this because no matter how much I love Michael Mann crime films or shows, the best ones are such an adrenaline rush, yet always leave me feeling a little empty inside. <laughs> These characters go through so much, but for what in the end? They either die or end up surrounded by death and emptiness, but it's dramatic shit and it makes for a good movie. Yeah, I always also love just the character, like, this is going to be my last job, one last job and I'm out scenario. This is the blueprint we see how Michael Mann likes the city of Chicago. You see how he writes his dialogue between characters and almost develops his own streetwise vernacular. You see the freeze frames. You see the framing in general, the composition of the frame within the camera. I hear the synth music, and this is all part of Michael Mann's auteur style and his world, and I can't get enough. Bill Bant, what are your initial thoughts of Thief? I have to say, I'm so glad you said, was it Ruffin... Rough and tumble. Yeah, rough and tumble. Because when I was watching this, 
And our running joke when we were talking about Nighthawks a couple episodes back is it was gritty. It's not quite gritty. There's something else. And I couldn't put my finger on it. And as soon as you said rough and tumble, I'm like, shit, that's it. That's what this movie is. So So, thank you. I was trying so hard to avoid gritty. Absolutely. My pleasure. (laughs) So about the movie Thief itself. After watching this, this is only the third time I've seen it. This movie might have become my favorite James Caan movie. You listed all the others, the other big hits that he had, you know, Godfather, Brian Song, Gambler, Rollerball, Misery. But this movie really yeah. features Khan, and it totally works because of James Khan. He is just, to me, he just seems, he's perfect in every frame. I really enjoyed his performance. I love the pacing of this movie. Just how authentic the movie feels. If you're a thief, I really felt like this is what you had to go through in order to accomplish a job. And I mean, there's a lot of heist movies out there and there's always these external factors to try to make it more exciting. And I felt like this, you you didn't need to know it. You just wanted to know about the guy, why the guy does what he does, why the guy was put in that situation. That's all I needed to know. To me, actually, the heist itself were the least interesting part of the movie. Mm, I love the build up to up to it. Everything had to do to do it. And then not saying I didn't like him. Because I think because I knew he was so proficient at his job that I wasn't worried about him being caught. He dots every I, crosses every T. He's always a step ahead of everyone else. That I wasn't worried that, oh, something's going to happen or something's going to fail. And they're not going to get out in time. Or someone's going to accidentally trip an alarm. Or a security guy they didn't know was supposed to be there was there that night. I just knew him like, he's going to pull this off. I'm not worried about that stuff. It's everything else I'm totally fascinated by with this character, and I want to know what's going on. I just loved learning about him, setting up jobs, the fact he runs a car dealership. There was something really cool about that. This facade that he puts up that he hides behind in order to make it look like, oh, why does he have all this cool, fancy stuff? He does that selling cars, but no no one's putting one-to-one together. I loved in the movie that he's very good at what he does, and then he gets intertwined with the mob and he didn't want to he really didn't want to do this and now it's complicated his life so much just so he can get an easier out when he could have just left the way things were because something kind of got screwed up and well he met the girl of his dreams and wants to run off with her Mm -hmm. and the only way he can do that is just to perform this last job get as much money as he can and gets out because he doesn't want to leave her but it's really added a lot of complications i really like that The fact that there is no redeeming character in this movie whatsoever, and I am totally in and rooting for them, that's not supposed to happen. Exactly. We have thieves, mobsters, crooked cops, crooked lawyers, crooked judges, prisoners. Maybe the hospital staff are the only people in this movie that are on the up and up. Right. I mean, even his girlfriend wife, she has a tainted past. She was Mm -hmm. with some bad people. But I didn't care because I was so fascinated by their story. I can't believe how much I enjoyed this movie. This is one of those, the same as what happened with To Live and Die in L.A. Why am I not watching this movie more? I enjoyed Mm. it so much. And, you know, the same thing with you, with the Michael Mann blueprint. It's almost like he got his first Lego set and he put it all together and it's great. But now he's gotten the additional sets to build on this one building. If you break everything down, it starts here. To certain shots, you're like, oh, yeah, I've seen that before. I've seen it used here. I've seen it used there. Yeah, the use of music, the use of lighting. You see it everywhere else, 
it's kind of like when they make fun of J.J. Abrams with the lens flare. Mm-hmm. And it's just his big sure. signature thing or, or John Woo with the slow motion. You just know right away or mm-hmm. you see it all in here with with man. So what's going to come. But there's something about what he does. There's a, a little more subtle to it in a sense, but you know, it's his work. It was just fascinating all around. I'm glad I went out and bought the Criterion collection of mm. this. That's awesome. I'm glad That's it's now part of my collection and hopefully going to get back and watch all the other, all the extras. But yeah, man, this one really just caught me off guard how much I enjoyed it. That's incredible. I love listening to you talk about it because it just reinvigorates my passion for the film and Michael uh, Mann's filmography in general, because this is an excellent movie. It's a great movie. Uh, I like your analogy to like the the Lego like beginner set. Like these are the building blocks that we're looking at and watching, and it's great unto itself. And again, I just want to reiterate that when I say muted Michael Mann, I'm not saying that in a derogatory fashion by any means. It's really, really a well-crafted film. And I was so surprised because, like yourself, Bill, now I will happily revisit this film. This is a film I will want to rewatch for very specific reasons and looking forward to very specific scenes and moments and dialogue and have an appreciation for it because it's unique and uh, unique to Michael Mann. And I am uh, grateful to have a new appreciation for him and for this movie. So, yeah, well said, man. This is the kind of movie that makes us want to be filmmakers. I mean, you named some great filmmakers, but here's another filmmaker that got us into filmmaking in the first place. This is why we do what we do. There's, I mean, these are the, the masters that we look up to and I'll get into it a little bit later that we're just truly influenced by them still today in, in our own craft and our own filmmaking and writing. It's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. All right. So let's move on to favorite scenes or moments. What are some of our favorite scenes and moments from Thief? You know what? I'm going to start off with a couple of moments back to back. I have to say, man, right off the get, we have our title card come up. It's kind of in the like a almost like a muted blue, like again with the colors, like it's not super neon glowing in your face, sort of with like a Manhunter mm-hmm. title card. This is Thief, but it's this kind of cool blue. This just this movie is cool. It's slick, just like the rain slick streets of Chicago from the What's on the Box segment. It's the title card, and we see James Caan getting into a car and, and driving off down the street in the middle of the night in Chicago, and it's, you know, it's just rainy and dark and wet, and then there's this killer shot. It's a crane shot that's lowering down into the alley at night. It's stunning. If you told me it was from Blade Runner, I would have believed you. It's so stylized. It's, again, raining at night in Chicago. The alley is lit by streetlights in the distance, and you're immediately immersed in this world. It's this shot that comes down. You see all the escape ladders. It feels like it's this narrow alleyway that's kind of closing in on you. And you can see the rain falling in the light from the street lamps. Anyway, uh, it comes all the way down to the alley level. And then, of course, the sound from the car radio comes in in the background and it cuts to the actual car in the alley, which is one of the team members of uh, Frank's team who's listening on the police radio to see if anybody is uh, looking for them or in the area or if there's any danger that is around the corner. So it's just a fantastic shot. It's like only Michael Mann does that. The lighting is perfect. 
in the city. Anyway, uh, another moment, what I call a little bit of a uh, save the cat moment, is after the opening scene, right after that shot in the alley, and there is the cold open, which is the initial heist that we watch this team pull off, and mainly Frank, as we see him using the tools of the trade, which is very cool. And we can tell he's very proficient and he's very good at what he does. And he steals the diamonds from the safe. And that's, of course, all he's looking for. He tosses everything out, grabs the diamonds. Well, they, you know, switch cars and you see he and James Belushi getting away and they park their cars in a certain place. And uh, James Conn parks his car in a garage. Anyway, it's just the underbelly of Chicago. You just, again, you're feeling it. You feel like you're there. And now... It's the wee hours of the morning and James Kahn has uh, gotten a little breakfast or whatnot in a brown paper bag and he's walking along the shoreline of Lake Michigan and he comes up across a uh, local fisherman and sits down, kind of crouches down next to him. It seems though as though he's familiar with him and he offers him a bagel from his uh, breakfast bag and the fisherman uh, is very happy to accept the bagel. And there's this shot from behind them, you see their silhouette, and the shot is of Lake Michigan, and the sun has yet to arise. It is about to come up, and everything is like in this blue hue, something that Michael Mann does. He just is so good at it. Yeah, I call it the save the cat moment because Frank is, you're already like, this guy's cool, man. Like, he just pulled off a great heist. You know, he's still awake. The sun is about to rise, and he comes across his buddy that's fishing there, like kind of on the shoreline there. And uh, offers him a bagel. And you're like, yeah, okay, I'm in. I like this guy again. But it's all for me. The moment is really the shot uh, from behind them of Lake Michigan. It's it's the magic hour. It's the great time to shoot at that time of the morning. It's another stunning shot. So those are two two great moments I wanted to start off with. Yeah, I love the shots of when they finish the heist and they're driving back. And we have the greens, the way the lights mm-hmm. are. That I was like, oh yeah, we, we're gonna see, we're Absolutely. gonna see that sure. in future. That that really stood out for me. And then I'm glad you brought up the fisherman because I almost kind of forgot about him because initially when I saw him, I thought for sure he was some kind of contact, and he was just hanging out there oh, waiting yeah. for Frank to bring whatever. And and then I was like, oh no, that's just someone Frank runs into all the time, and they just kind of shoot the shit, and they probably don't even know each other's name but they know of each other. So I thought that was kind of cool and it worked. I mean, you never see that character again. He doesn't turn up, but that moment just works. It just works. And of course, you know, with the cinematography there at the end of the skyline. Yeah. I'm glad you brought up the, uh, the beginning of the movie. I'm jumping ahead a little bit. Yeah, no problem. Yeah. go. So for, for me, my first favorite scene is um, Frank wants his money. Okay, we've established Frank's a thief. Um, we see the first heist that he's done that that we've seen him do, and it's diamonds. And he's very specific about what he gets. It's always diamonds. They're always cut a certain way. He doesn't want jewelry. He doesn't want cash. He doesn't want bonds. He's a diamond thief. That's what he wants. So he has the, the diamonds, and he passes them off to his middleman. His middleman is named Joe Gags. Joe Gags checks him out and says... Okay, Joe usually sells them off, but he sees this stash and goes, you know what, I'm going to buy them. Have your guy come by in a couple hours. I'll give you the money. Done deal. And because Frank's dealt with him a lot of times, he trusts him, gives him the diamonds, he leaves. So Frank's buddy, Barry, played by James Belushi, goes to pick up the money. 
but there's a little problem. Joe's gags kind of fell out of the window, dead in the pavement with Frank's money. 185000 Now Frank's all pissed off. He's out diamonds. He's out the money. So he basically tells Barry, find out who did this and find out who the hell's got my money. I got to get my money back. Barry makes a few calls and we figure out who has it. So it's this guy named Ataglia and his front is a plate company who supplies, I guess, uh, metallic plates for steel. And Frank decides he's just going to show up to the company and uh, get his money back. And he has Barry drop him off in front of the store. And he's like, I'll be right back. And he walks in. And it's just a nonchalant looking office. You have a bunch of secretaries there. Kind of looks around. He sees, um, I think, Dennis Freyna, who we see in many That's other right. Michael Mann. With crime story in the t- television show. Ends up in Manhunter. Frank is quickly casing the place. Um, woman asks him, "What? do you need help? He's like, yeah, I'm here to see uh, Taglia. She's like, okay. So she sends him in the office and Taglia's on the phone. He's blah, 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 blah. He's like, you know, what the hell do you want? And Taglia's behind his desk and he's on the phone, hangs up the phone. And Frank grabs the chair that's on the other side of the desk and puts it parallel. So he's at like a 90 degree angle and basically just says, yeah, I want my money. Love it. And Taglia's like, what the hell are you talking about? What, What are you doing in here? What are you? And Frank's like, no bullshit. I know who you are. I know you got my money. I want my money right now. And of course, the tag is like, dude, get the fuck out of my face. I don't know who you are. I don't know what you're talking about. Get out. So Frank's like, all right, if I got to do it this way, basically pulls out a gun and said, look, you got four hours to get me my money or I'm going to blow your brains all over this office. And at that point, Tagla's men come in and Frank has a tag with the gun in his head. He's like, both of you get on the floor, drop. and Frank's just taking charge. He just came in. He's just taking charge. And basically just leaves like, you'll have my money in a couple hours or else I'm coming back. And you're fucking with the wrong guy. Go get my goddamn money. It's my money. And leaves. And you know he's a master thief. And now you know this guy puts up with no bullshit whatsoever. Zero. I loved it. He just walked in someone else's turf and just stomped all over it. Damn, this is one badass dude he's just not afraid he has no fear and we'll find out later on why he has no fear but you're just like this character is so interesting everything has such a purpose and the fact is like i'm not pussyfooting around with my money i earn this money you're getting me my money or else there's gonna be hell to pay i loved it a thousand percent bill bant this also was my first favorite scene without a doubt Mm -hmm. You pretty much summed it all up. I will just reiterate some points. It really is all about character establishment. And Michael Mann does it so well. He does it well in all of his films. But I mean, here, you nailed it. We've seen him as a master safe cracker. But now we see the real drive, the real tough guy aspect, the real man on a mission. He knows what he wants and he's going to go get it and nothing's going to stand in his way. And what I like about how you were describing the lead up to this particular scene when we know that Frank has made contact at the diner with his fence, which I love that term fence. Like I love every little aspect about a heist film when you have very specific terms and there's a vernacular for this whole world and that's the middleman is the fence. And 
he has the meeting at the table. And by the way, I lo- here's another Michael Mann signatures. He loves to shoot in diners. He loves shooting scenes in restaurants. It's just, and that's not maybe singular to Michael Mann, but he loves to shoot a great conversation in a diner. And we have that scene with the fence looking over the diamonds and saying, okay, I'll get you, you know, he's going to pay him $185,000 for it. But then afterward, we actually see Frank go to a bar, which is another establishment that I didn't realize until doing further research was another establishment that he owns because he owns the used car dealership, but he also owns this bar that he actually does a lot of his business out of. And he has meetings at this particular establishment and he takes phone calls at the bar. And that's where he takes the phone call from his partner, Barry, James Belushi, and finds out that Joe Gags, what a great character name, has been thrown from the 12th story of a building and he isn't getting his $185,000. But then, like you said, Billy finds out that it's a taglia and the mob that now has his money. They had thrown Joe Gags out of the window because Joe Gags was skimming from the mob. Not a good idea. So Frank pulls up with Barry in the car. Barry's driving and drops Frank off at the L&A plating company. Immediately, Frank takes a gun, pulls back the uh, the slide, and he's ready to rock, gets out of the car, and just simply turns to Barry and says, keep the car running. And you just know this is it. He's just going to, he's literally going in to take care of business. Nothing's getting in this guy's way. And yeah, he goes in, to, does the whole thing. Man, yeah, when <laughs> talking to Ataglia, because Ataglia is denying it profusely, no, denying everything. Not budging an inch, and the entire time, Frank is just like, "Nope, what you what you just gonna sit there? You, what are you gonna do? You're gonna tell me some fairy tales?" And then has to pull his gun and put it point it right at him, and that's the image on the poster. The old the classic poster of Thief is with Khan. Well, there's a couple versions, but the uh, the most popular one you may see is of Khan with the gun, and that's in this particular scene when he's pointing the gun at Ataglia, tells the thugs to get on the ground, and then looks directly at Ataglia and says, I am the last guy in the world that you want to fuck with. And when James Conn says that, you believe it. You just do. And like you said, when after the scene, he's like, okay, we're going to meet in three hours and you're going to have my 185000 He exits that office, goes back into that main office where there's several female secretaries. He's literally just has his gun out in the open and he's pointing it at them and they're freaking out and he's not going to do anything to them, but he's just commanding the scene. And there's one male secretary at the end, of it, right before he leaves, and he just looks at him and goes, sit down. And of course, the male secretary probably shit his pants and sat down as he just walked out. Because James Kahn can do that. At first, you're like, what kind of, you know, this guy just walked in with a gun. But no, he totally, totally commands. He lets it all hang out. Absolutely no bullshit. He has no time and no patience for it. He's just about getting his money, so... Apologies if it was a little redundant and repetitive, but it's a great scene and I wanted to talk about it too. So there you go. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense. He, I mean, he wants them to know you did not take Gag's money. You took my money. So I want my money back. I don't give a shit what Gag's did to you. I mm-hmm. want what's owed to me. I love it. Uh, what do you got next for uh, scene? Because I'm afraid we'll probably overlap on the next one too. Absolutely. Well, I'm just calling my next favorite scene Frank and Jesse have a date. Yep, me too. It's most likely known or as an iconic scene or the iconic scene in the film. And it's just another scene in a diner 
but I'm going to talk a little bit more about the lead up to this particular diner scene as well. It is very much a love scene. It's a relationship scene and it's unique and I love it. It's brutally honest. It's awkward. It's raw. It's real. It's different. I can't get enough of it. I was rewatching it, writing down every step of the way throughout these scenes. And it's just, it was great to rewatch and to watch the performances of both Tuesday Weld as Jesse and James Conn as Frank. So going back to that initial meeting between Frank and his fence, Joe Gags at the local diner, when he's handing over the diamonds to Joe Gags and getting a price for them, whatnot. We see in the midst of that conversation, we see Frank staring at the cashier in the distance in the diner, who happens to be Jesse, the love interest in the film portrayed by Tuesday, uh, Tuesday Well. When Frank goes to pay the check, he confirms that he's asked her out on a date, which she's agreed to. Now, here's a little side note, Bill Band. I don't know if you felt this way. I, I love the sort of misdirect in this film initially between Jesse and Frank's, you know, their relationship status, meaning... I thought for some reason this was the meet cute, meaning this is the first time that Frank was maybe making eyes with Jesse and flirting with her and asking her out on a date, very much like De Niro and Amy Brenneman from Heat when they're at the diner and they have their meet cute. And there are a lot of parallels, by the way, between this film and Heat. Again, blueprint, Heat comes later. It's a fully fleshed out movie. Not that this isn't, it's just... Anyway, watch Heat, you will see, and make the comparisons yourself. So I thought this was just the beginning of Jesse and Frank's relationship, but soon understand that they've been dating for some time already, and we're dropped smack dab into the middle of their relationship. But the fact is, Frank has not told Jesse what his real job is. She just thinks he's a used car salesman. Now, at this point, we know that Frank... He got his money back from Ataglia because we saw the scene at the Pier Lakeside when Frank meets Ataglia's boss, the big boss, the mob boss named Leo. And Leo makes a deal with Frank, a sort of trial run. They'll do a couple of jobs together and Frank will work under Leo's protection and the scores will be big. And then Frank is free to do whatever he wants after that if he still wishes to work alone. And Frank reluctantly agrees. Now, back to Frank and Jesse. Frank goes to pick up Jesse at the club for their date. We get some jazzy blues music, and clearly Jesse's been waiting too long for Frank, for about two hours to be exact, when Frank goes in and forces her to leave with him. He manhandles her a bit. Once again, Bill Bant, Frank is not messing around. He doesn't have time. He takes what he wants. And this is the start of a crazy but awesome relationship scene. Frank peels out in his caddy, causing another car to crash in the middle of the street. But he doesn't give a shit. He drives Jesse to this diner and during the car ride begins an onslaught of straight up jarringly honest dialogue. That's wonderful. You get Frank saying, look, I do. There are sometimes pressures. What the hell do you think that I do? Come on, come on. Every morning I walk in for five months and say hi. What the hell do you think that I do? And she says, you sell that little fucking cars. That's what you do. And he says, I wear $150 slacks. I wear silk shirts. I wear $800 suits. I wear a gold watch. I wear a perfect D flawless three carat ring. I change cars like other guys change their fucking shoes. I'm a thief. I've been in prison. All right. It's great. 
And it's weird because he's just so just laying it all on her because he simply doesn't know how else to act. He doesn't have the patience or the emotional maturity. They get to the diner and Jesse is still not having it. She's pissed because he was late. She's pissed because he's a thief. She's pissed and doesn't want to even be near him. Yet she still is there. She's still with him. And part of her wants to know his story. But we get her story first. We learn that she's had this rough previous relationship to a drug dealer that died. We know she's damaged. We know she's drawn to Frank, but she doesn't want to go down that same path. She doesn't know if he's going to get killed or get busted doing what he does. Will he ever come back home to her if they were to engage in a relationship? And in an attempt to get her to acquiesce to his wants and needs, to get her to be with him, he lays it all out for her in no uncertain terms. He begins telling her his real story, how Frank was incarcerated for 11 years for initially stealing $40. But when he was attacked in prison, he killed a guy and his sentence was lengthened. Thus, when he went into prison when he was 20, he didn't get out until he was 30. But the point of his story was that he only survived because he lost everything and felt nothing. And he was nothing. And nobody messed with him after that. But now he knows what he wants. And he's older. He feels like he's out of time. She continues to refuse his raw proposal and says she can't have children. And he says, no problem. We'll adopt. And she says, She just has her own life and she can't do this. She's not ready. And he, in his brutally honest way, says, what is going on in your life that is so terrific? And pleads with her, explaining he's got a fast way to make cash now because he's made the deal. Thus, they can get away. And in the end, he, he simply overwhelms her. Tears are falling from her face and she takes his hand and in essence agrees to be with him. It's two lost souls finding each other through a rough conversation. It's lopsided conversation. It's not romantic. It's not sexy. It's just about facing the reality that this is what it is. And there really isn't much else of an option. It's a bit heartbreaking and bittersweet. James Kahn, his natural delivery and performance is completely engaging and engrossing and all-encompassing. He finds a way to be charming through his lack of finesse. Tuesday Weld is just broken and honest, and two people are here that just don't want to be alone. doesn't get much simpler. By the way, I'll just say I love this location, this particular diner. It's an overpass. You see the cars driving on the highway underneath. I used to actually go to a place like that outside Chicago. It was a food court that was on an overpass. I just thought it was cool, like a restaurant floating over a highway. I just wanted to mention that. It's a fantastic scene. The writing is brilliant. It's in your face, and um, again, wonderful performances. Yeah, great breakdown, Jason. And I had this definitely in uh, one of my favorite scenes, too. And what I mentioned in the beginning of the episode that I s- said this was the third time I watched it, it, ended up being third and fourth time. When I watched it the third time, I needed the research to back this up. I initially thought this was the first date. I thought Khan had become this diner forever, and then he finally asked her out. And then he shows up late. So that's why she's super pissed. And he dumps all this information on him because his mentor, Okla, David, Willie Nelson, he goes to see him in prison and says, I met this girl. I don't know what to tell her. And Okla says, you got to tell her the truth. You cannot live a lie because then you're always going to carry this lie and try to hide this lie. Oh, sure. I gotcha. I figure this was... I'm with mom. I'm making more money. 
I want to be with someone for this. And he's just had his eyes on Jesse forever. And now that he's starting this new chapter in his life, he wanted her to be a part of it. So I think what they did was, I think that was the initial goal. And then they recut it to make it seem like that they've known each other or they're a little bit closer than it initially seemed. I think it works either way. I think, yeah, I think you're right, Bill. I think that what happened, this does feel as though that may have been their first real date, but he, there is a line where he says, I've been coming in for five months just to say hi. So they may have not actually been on a so-called real date, but they knew they were familiar with one another. Correct. So it's a little bit of both. I think you might be right though, that this could be their first date. It's just, it is, it's a lot to unload on each other or for him to kind of, you know, for a, it's a lot for a first date, but maybe that's what we're supposed to, to feel, mm-hmm. you know? And then the fact that he gets her in the car and yeah, drops the, I'm a thief. I've been in prison. I've been married, but I realize you're the one I want to be with. It somehow gets into the diner and even talks about this whole story about being in prison, what he had to do to survive, why he's become the person that he's become. He's had no family. Oakla's been his only guidance, and basically Oakla taught him how to be a thief. But he knows he wants her, and he knows if the two of them are together, he'll get out of this business because he's going to have enough money and leave a very happy life. So it's almost like that light at the end of the tunnel moment. Maybe he's turning a new leaf. You're not really sure, but the fact that he's Mm -hmm. just so raw about everything. I don't think I've ever been that honest with anyone in my life that just his mannerisms at the table and everything that he does and just the way he tells the story. And she's, she's just sitting there like, what the hell am I supposed to be doing right now? Half of her has to be saying, just get out of here, find a taxi cab, go home. I don't want to see this guy anymore. But at the same time, she is so attracted to him that she has to stay and she has to hear the story. She has to hear what the pitch is. It's, it's very fascinating. It really does set up the second half of the story really well, and which is great. It's a great centerpiece of the movie. A hundred percent. And you can tell she's going through an internal struggle. She wants him, but she doesn't. She knows it's wrong or it's dangerous, but they do actually have a lot of in common. And even though she is struggling with this and wanting to just perhaps leave, that's her instinct. It's great. There's so many great subtle moments with throughout the scene. But as soon as he starts telling his story about being incarcerated, it's a wonderful moment. You see her tech go off her coat. She takes off her coat and and you're like, oh, he's got her. She's going to stick around. She's going to listen. And then he gets comfortable. There's a great moment where he's trying to light a cigarette. If you do the research, the lighter was supposed to work. It didn't work. And he's just forced, James Kahn himself is forced to be real. Uh, He just deals with it and he's just telling his story. And yeah, it's just fun to watch him lay it out because that's the character spent so much of his life in jail, incarcerated, institutionalized, that he doesn't know any other way than to just put it all out there. What is she supposed to do with that? But then somehow is won over by him. It's it's a, fa- yeah, you, you said it's fascinating. It is a fascinating dynamic because 
every instinct as you're watching it as an audience member, you're going, there's no way she would be, go with him. No way. But as he continues to talk, and then another great moment is, you know, when he brings up Okla, when he actually pulls out the, what's like a postcard sized piece of paper, something that he had kind of constructed a little collage slash like paper mache project he had made when he was incarcerated that kind of encapsulates his thoughts and dreams and, and also a depiction of death. It's crazy because he really is so raw and opens up to her in such a complete and vulnerable way. He says things that are really tough when he's talking about the situation in jail. That's like brutal stuff. And it may not even be graphic, but it's just in in the actual description, but it's it's enough where you're like, this is uncomfortable. But if this person is being brave enough to just put it all out there, there's something attractive about that. And she gives in to that. I don't know. Yeah, it's pretty great. And I think what even makes it tougher, too, is Jesse's already kind of gone down this path with someone. Correct. Yeah. And she's oh, yeah. seen the outcome of it. And she kind of mentions at one point, how do I know you're going to come home? How do I know you're not going to get killed? How do I know you're not going to end up in jail? Because right. she's seen that. She's seen that happen before. And the fact that she's going to take another chance, how am I rationalizing this? That it makes sense for me to actually listen to what this guy is saying and actually say yes. Yeah, because like you said, she describes her past. She knows that she's not innocent either. She can tell him all to as much as she wants. She can tell him how she's got her shit together now. She's got her life. She's figured things out. It's calm. It's peaceful. She's happy. She knows somewhere deep down inside that's not who no. she is. That's not what she wants. Yeah, she she has to secretly hate it. There's a yearning. Yeah. There's a yearning and to go it, back to that kind of lifestyle. Not the bad shit. Yeah, yeah. And she may not have a, a wonderful self image either. I mean, she's broken, and so is mm -hmm. he. And that's he's just trying to say, hey, look, we're two peas in a pod here. We're we're made for each other. You just gotta come with me and and just kind of open your eyes and realize that this is, this is it. I'll take care of you. One last job. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I highly recommend it. If anything <laughs> to the listeners out there, if you're not that familiar with this film, I'd almost say just, you know, you can find the scene on YouTube, just watch the scene and you'll be like, Oh yeah, I got to watch yep. this movie. <laughs> it's just great. Uh, what, what do you have next uh, for another favorite scene or moment? This takes place near the end of the movie. So Frank does the job for the mob and the head of the mob is uh, Leo and it's this big diamond heist and he can make enough money off of this heist that he could retire, never have to do this again. And of course, now that Leo has his hooks in him, he wants to keep Frank around, but Frank wants to get out. He's not doing this. And I just love that. Frank realizes the only way I'm going to get out of this is I'm basically have to take Leo and his top henchmen out. And it starts off with, at this point in the movie, Jesse and Frank are together. Thanks to Leo, they've adopted a, a child. But now Frank has to give up everything. He has to give up everything and move on. And he basically kicks Jesse and the, and the baby, who they named David, out of the home and he just started literally blowing yeah. up his life. Starts with his house, blows it up, goes to the bar that he does, uses the phone to do his deal, blows it up, goes to the car dealership that he works at, blows it up. And now it's 
I got to take out Leo or if Leo takes out me, there's not going to be any trace of anything. I'm just, I'm resetting. I'm resetting at that point. And part of me didn't understand it, but I just thought it was so fucking cool that this is what it comes down to because that's just who Frank is. That's just who he is. In order for him to get what he wants, he's got to make these sacrifices and he he just has no regrets. I mean, he's, t- he's telling the woman that he loves, get out. The businesses that he's put together, this life he's put together, it's all got to come down. I've been screwed. I'm not going to take it. I'm fixing it. I just loved he was just going around just fucking torching the shit out of everything. Absolutely. That's part of my final favorite scene as well. Uh, it's all the lead up to the final shootout and including the final shootout, the climax of the film. And I'll just skip right to that. You you covered the lead up to that particular scene, especially the scene I'm I'm uh, pinpointing is the scene between Frank and Jesse when he cuts her okay. off and sends her away because that particular scene is gut wrenching. Kudos to both of them because he literally wakes her up in the middle of the night because at this point he knows he knows immediately after what's happened, after what's gone down with between he and Leo, that. His life, as he knows it, is over. He's going to have to cut all ties. He's going to erase all traces of his existence. He knows exactly what he has to do. This is what he he does. And as much as he might hate it, he can't escape who he is. He can't escape his lifestyle and what he's done. And this is the price. And he knows it. And there's an immediate comparison, again, to Heat, because I we know Heat like the back of our hand with Neil McCauley's character played by Robert De Niro and uh, his relationship to Amy Brenneman at the end of that particular film when Neil makes a choice. He goes to the hotel and goes after, uh, I forget that character's name, goes after him, but then comes back down from the hotel. The alarms are blaring and he knows the cops are coming in. They're closing in on him. And he walks up to the car where Amy Brenneman is waiting for him. They're about to go to the airport and take off for their new life. And he knows the police are coming. And he turns around and just leaves her. Leaves her right there in that moment. Because he has the quote in the film, which is, don't let yourself get attached to anything you are not willing to walk out on in 30 seconds flat if you feel the heat around the corner. And we see the beginnings of this in Thief, in this scene between Frank and Jesse. Frank knows he has to let her go. There is no other choice, and he has to do it immediately. He has to know it, do it now. In this case, it's not the police that are going to be coming after him. It'll be the mob. So his performance in that scene is so cold. He barely even raises his voice. You're waiting for James Kahn to snap at her because he wakes her up in the middle of the night and says, you got to get out. Take David. You're going to get out. My driver's going to take you. Here's $410,000. You're going to split it up. You're going to spend it this way over this amount of time. He's going to take you to an undisclosed location. Nobody will be able to find you. It's over. I'm never going to see you or my son ever again. I'm paraphrasing, obviously, but that's it. And she's like, what the fuck? What? I'm barely awake. I don't know what you're talking about. But she knows. She gets it. And she's crying. And then she's gone. And like you said... He sets all the explosives at his house, at the bar, at the dealership, and he blows up everything, erasing all the trade. And then this is where it just like Michael Mann at his best, it's the final shootout because 
the final thing that Frank has to do to clean this up is kill all the bad, <laughs> the bad guys. I mean, they're all bad guys in this, as Bill, you mentioned earlier, but he's got to take out his enemies, which is uh, Leo and Ataglia and Leo's henchmen. So he goes straight to the source. He goes right to Leo's house, lovely suburbs of Chicago. And it's great because now we get some great sound design and we know it's just going to be Frank kicking ass and it's going to be a shootout. And Frank goes into the home and it's he's creeping around. He's a predator pursuing his prey. And he's got the gun drawn. He's got the cool leather jacket. And uh, he comes across a taglia in the kitchen and kind of knocks him out using the fridge. Then goes upstairs oh so quietly. And at this point, Leo knows that Frank's in the house and Leo is snuck upstairs and he's behind like a, a dresser or whatnot and with his own gun drawn and just waiting. But it doesn't freaking matter because Frank comes around the corner and just blows him away, shoots him a couple times in the chest, and then Leo makes one more dying effort and you get the great squib effect and just blood splatter all over the wall. So he takes out Leo, goes back downstairs, and at this point, Ataglia has regained consciousness and runs outside. He starts running off when one of uh, Leo's henchmen, good old Dennis Farina, shows up with a shotgun, and Frank shoots Dennis Farina once. He goes down, and then, of course, from a pretty long distance, shoots Ataglia a couple times, takes him out. He's just taking them all out one by one. But henchman Dennis Farina comes up one more time and puts a bullet in Frank, and we're like, oh, crap. Frank's going down. He falls down, rolls over, puts two more in Dennis Farina, finally killing him. And we realize Frank has been wearing a bulletproof vest. He gets up. And this entire time, we got this great rock and roll soundtrack in the in the background. Just great music. It's Tangerine Dream. It's all that where it's, you know, this is Michael Mann. You know, it's going to be great, great music behind the action sequence. We get a lot of slow motion shots of people being blown away and falling into bushes and falling backwards, arms flailing onto the street, and there's blood everywhere. I mean, it's just Michael Mann to a T. And that final shot, again, it's ah, it's just so cool. It cuts to like a standard medium shot of the yard of this house in suburbia. And you're like, what are we looking at? We're looking at the front lawn. And then James Kahn rises into frame and begins walking down the sidewalk. And then it turns into this high to low shot where it's like a crane shot. The camera rises up into the trees, looking down upon the lone wolf, Frank, walking off into the night, once again, alone with nothing, having to start all over. And it's an impactful final shot. Boom, blackout. And once again, we get the title card, Thief, with the rock and roll music coming up. Oh, man, it's just great. It's just great. It's everything you want from Michael Mann. Just like, God damn, he did it, man. This is an awesome movie. Why haven't I watched this a million times already? I got a question for you, Jason. Yeah. Would you have been okay if Frank died in that moment? Like, everyone's dead. Yes. I was expecting him to die, actually. I, for I, didn't, I had forgotten everything mm -hmm. at this point. I didn't remember either. Because you're just like, oh, shit, he got shot. But yeah, that didn't bother me. And I'm like, okay, if he died too, I'm cool with that. Yeah, they all die. Everybody's going to die. That's what I thought. I mean, this this is how this ends. Yeah, that last shot is, it literally walks into the darkness. That's it is badass. Yeah. Well, that's all I got. Oh, I did have one other moment I can shout out real quick. But I, did you no. have any other uh, favorite moments or scenes? I'm good. 
There's just a great moment. The big heist that uh, Leo had hired him to do in Los Angeles is a great moment because they have to go through all the planning, et cetera, and they have to use special tools and they get break into the building. And it, right before they're about to engage in the burning is what I think they call it. They're going to actually burn down the uh, the door to the safe. You have James Kahn talking over the radio into the walkie-talkie, talking to his partner, Barry, on the roof. And are the alarms taken care of? Or And, and basically, Barry says, yeah, we're good to go. And then James Kahn simply says, come on, we own it. I just love that moment. Because he does own it. They own it. He owns it. He literally just says, come on, we own it. And boom, they engage and they pull off the heist. Yep. Just a cool moment. Everything's just literally melt the safe door off. It's crazy. Yeah. Now let's take a quick break to hear from our friends over at the Docking Bay 77 podcast. Hi, I'm Dayton, the host of the Docking Bay 77 podcast. We talk about everything from anthrax to the Muppets to West Side Story. All right, boys, buckle up because we have hit the bottom (laughs) of the barrel. He slaughters all the Tusken Raiders. The fact that she stays by his side, that, that tells me everything I need to know about these women that write letters to serial killers in prison. You know, it makes it made sense. You know, mopey, young, sad, always dumped Tim. That was the theme song, you know. <laughs> when you listen, Tim, did you have the volume on? Or? Oh, God. Uh, the witches are definitely much more nightmare fuel. But the fact that they look like the Texas Chainsaw Centerfolds. Um, <laughs> Um, if Django Fett is so awesome he's hired to be cloned, why the hell isn't he doing the job? He's like, my Question. client's getting impatient. Well, then, what, you slack-ass mother? Why don't you do it? You know, you're just... <laughs> Check us out on Apple Podcasts, Good Pods, Podbean, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Now back to our show. All right, so let's move on to Swiss Cheese and Complaint Department. And why do we call it Swiss Cheese? Because although this movie is delicious, it does have safe holes. Yes, if it doesn't have those safe holes, we just file a complaint with the Complaint Department. So, Jason, what do you have for Swiss Cheese or Complaints? As our listeners can probably tell by now, we're kind of having a love affair with this movie. I don't have a lot. I have no Swiss Cheese. I have very few complaints. Just kind of like, did this kind of bother you? That's my <laughs> my questions I'm going to have for you. There's a couple times I got thrown off with the transitions between Chicago and L.A. I got that a little confused. Me also confused. Yes. There's a jump when we understand that Frank has taken on this job. It's going to be a big score. He's going to get eight hundred fifty thousand dollars from this this job that uh, Leo has lined up in Los Angeles. And you, it's one of those great rooftop shots where you see the crew with Leo. And they're casing the joint. They're looking at the building across the way where they're going to perform the heist. And they are talking about all the planning that's going to go into it. And I didn't realize, oh, they're in Los Angeles. <laughs> I was like, 
we've left Chicago. We're already in Los Angeles. You know how usually there's either a shot, like some sort of stock footage of a plane right. taking off from an airport? Where's our title card saying Los Angeles, December 6th, 246 p.m.? <laughs> right? Where is it when yeah. you need it? We're always bitching about those stupid timestamps on in movies that are unnecessary, and this is where we actually. Yeah, I, I did get a little confused with the Chicago, L.A. because when I thought they bought their house, I thought they bought their house in L.A. that they were moving on. This is going to be the last job, and they mm. were going to stay out there. And I was like, oh wait, wait a second, nope. So yeah, I got a little confused on the locations. Yeah. Um, I think my biggest thing was the fifth alarm. Sure. So in this Los Angeles job, they know that there's. Five alarms that are protecting this safe. And four of them are through phone lines, which Barry can go in and easily disable. But then there's a fifth line, and they can't figure out how the fifth line works. And they eventually find out that it's some kind of telecommunication where you have to literally call it in like a passcode. And once you call the passcode in remotely, the alarm is, let's say, triggered because it's not going off, but it's they shut it off. So Barry has to figure out what this passcode is. So he kind of just say goes undercover into the building to figure out what the passcode is. And he's able to wiretap it and hear what it is. But he only listens to it one time. Mm-hmm. How do you know they don't change that on a weekly basis? Or every other day? Absolutely. Like, Shouldn't you try to get it a couple days to make sure it's the same to see what the pattern is? And then when they get the password and they break into the safe... Now, every time that they've been opening the safe with the passcode is usually first thing in the day. Well, they're breaking into this safe and off hours. That's a red flag. Thought the same thing. Thought the exact same thing. So, yeah, the fifth alarm, a cool little device to try to like, all right, we know how to do everything else except figure out this fifth alarm. What's How do we do this? But, yeah, I wasn't totally sold on the execution of the fifth alarm. Well stated. Great call. It's a great complaint. Totally agree. I thought exactly the same thing. Both points. When it was like, oh, okay, great. They know how to get the verbal passcode, but that could change day to day or week to week. So you would have to get the code on the day of the heist. And then, yes, it's in the middle of the night when they're pulling it off. So when why would they immediately, whoever's on the other end, would be like, why is somebody calling? calling in the passcode and trying to enter the building. Right. At this and hour. normally in probably other thief, there's, you have to come up with the kooky scenario. You're like, Oh, there's a flood. The roof caved in and it's flooding and we need to get in. And that's why we're giving you the passcode and you got a full right. Run. So I guess in a way, I'm glad they didn't do that. But at the same time, I'm like, ah, I should have came up with something a little bit better in order for them to understand. Like, it's yeah. a good complaint. Absolutely. Uh, my next complaint isn't really a complaint. It's just an observation. It's just tough, man. This whole, because the fact of the matter is that Jesse can't have a child. So there's a whole part of this movie where Frank and Jesse are wanting to adopt and they go to an adoption agency and it's rough. It's a rough scene because the woman that's interviewing them realizes quickly, well, thanks to Frank just being honest as he is, uh, that Frank had done a lot of time and wasn't probably fit in their eyes, at least at the agency's eyes to be a parent and uh, gets really upset. And so they realize, well, adoption isn't uh, an option. So 
Frank ends up going to Leo and explains the situation. And Leo's like, I can get you a baby. It's like, Jesus Christ. Yep. Oh my God. And gets Frank and Jesse a baby off the black market. There's a, it says there's a woman that has kids. It's a black market business. And I'm just complaining because I don't like thinking about that. It's pretty awful. Like it's just so many things about this movie. This movie's dark, man. It's dark. I mean, you you're pulling for Frank and Jesse, but man, there's some dark content because just the, the especially the scene when it is Jesse that goes to get the child, and you just see like a woman come down in an elevator and pass off the baby. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty pretty rough, and it's like, oh man, yeah, just the whole concept of the black market babies was upsetting to me. <laughs> It works for the film, you know, because it's like, this is how far they're going to go just to have a child. And it's necessary, too, as a plot point, because that really is what I think Leo holds over Frank's head at the end. You know, it's like, I got you a kid. I'll take it right back. I got you a child. I'll do whatever the hell I want with your your end of the money, you know, Mm -hmm. your take. You don't call the shots anymore. I own you. You owe me more. You know, whatever. But... um. I just wanted to comment on it, I guess. Yeah, because when that scene starts and you see Jesse and Frank in the office and you're trying to figure out, okay, oh, where where are they? I thought they were trying to buy a house. So they're trying to apply for a loan. And then once it got into the adoption, I was like, oh, this isn't going to go well. Mm-hmm. And he blows up. And then Leo. So that's the thing. Frank doesn't even bring it up to Leo. Leo knows and says, oh, I heard you were trying to adopt a baby. Didn't go too hot. And then right. you're like, oh, fuck, yeah. He's got your hooks in you already. He's like, I'll get you, baby. Place an order. What do you want? Male, female, what race? And it's like, oh, Jesus. Yeah, that's just. It's rough, man. It's sad. Um, So I only had one other issue. So Okla, do we need Okla in the movie? Great question. Yeah, I hear you. I agree. I don't know. I mean, no knock on Willie Nelson or the character. And what it is, is Okla has basically taught Frank the ropes. He's in prison. He finds out he's dying. And he basically tells Frank, I just don't want to die in prison. You got to figure out a way to get me out. There you go. Once again, goes to Leo. Leo's like, oh, no problem. We'll take care of it. And they end up riding the judge. And the judge lets Okla go, only to die literally hours after he's released. Yeah, that surprised me a little mm-hmm. bit. Yeah, I thought there would have been more to it with that character of Okla. Yeah, uh, it's underdeveloped or it's just not as necessary. We understand that Okla represents the mentor character and or is the I mean, he is the mentor. And how does it serve the story or move the story forward to have those particular scenes? I'm not sure. I don't know. Right, because we could hear about Okla. But do we ever need to see the physical representation of him? No, I don't. I don't think so. In the end, yeah. Who knows? And maybe something ended up on the deleted, you know, uh, in the deleted scenes. Something was on the cutting room floor there. But yeah, it has nothing to do with Willie Nelson personally or how he portrayed the character. I was just, I was like, if you want to cut seven minutes, yeah. Out. And Willie Nelson it was good. It was good to see him. He, yeah. he was cool. He was fun to to see. He was fine. I mean, you know, he's not in a method actor right. or anything, but he's uh, he was fun. It, it was. Fun to see him mm-hmm. in the part. And obviously, Michael Mann is a fan of his. Oh, yeah. Willie Nelson, you know, would appear again in Miami Vice. Vice, yes, he would. Good old Willie Nelson. That's Yeah, that's all I had. 
Good call. Uh, my last question slash complaint was, what happened to all the dirty cops then? Because you can help me with the timeline of mm-hmm. the movie too, which was, this is cool. So we have the dirty cops that have been following Frank and they want a piece of the action because they kind of got the drop on Frank. They were watching and taking photos as he made the initial deal with Leo, the mob boss, to take down some scores. So the cops know what's going down, but they're dirty themselves. They want they approach Frank and they're like, we're on to you. We want a piece. And he's like, I don't know what you're talking about. F off. But the cops keep pursuing him. And then they've been tailing him. And Frank realizes that they put a uh, tracker on his car. And eventually he takes that tracker, puts it on a bus and leads <laughs> the cops to where was the bus going like Des Moines yeah. or something like that which is funny and it's cool like because th- once again it's like a bait and, like bait and switch kind of thing that Frank pulls with swapping cars and the, putting the tracker on the bus so that's all great and then Frank does the final job in LA and then gets screwed over by Leo and then blows up his whole life as you put it so succinctly but what happens with now? Are the cops not going to pursue him anymore, or are they no longer are part of the equation? Are we just to assume he had ditched them, and by the time they were about to find him again, he'd already blown up his life and you know erased any possible trace? I think maybe he did that more for existence. the cops. Now that you ask that question, because that makes sense. Because here's the thing: the cops had no idea who Frank was until he meets with Leo. So he's pretty much mm-hmm. under the radar, and now Leo's put him in the spotlight. But that's an additional problem, as I said before, that he's picked up because of being associated with the mob. So I, part of it was wiping all trace of him. Because yeah, if, so yeah, the so if the cops successful or, or not, yeah. Frank going to kill Leo, then they're going to just go after Frank. And they're going to figure out like, oh, Frank's front was this car dealership and, and just take all that. So they that would have made his life. So, yeah, he might have used yeah. There would have been a paper trail that they would have followed eventually to wherever his location. Yeah, that yeah, might have been yeah, more for the I cops totally yeah, yeah. Than, than actually the mob, to yeah. be honest. That totally yeah. makes sense. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, you helped okay. me answer a question. Yeah, no, problem right. solved. Awesome. Well, that's all I got. We can keep it rolling, brother. All right, let's move on then with, hey, it's that actor. So in this segment, right. we spotlight a character actor you have seen in many other films, an actor making their big screen debut, or an actor that makes an uncredited cameo. It's, hey, it's an actor. So who do we choose for this week, Jason? This week, Bill Bant, we chose the actor Robert Prosky, who played Leo, the mob boss. We were just talking about him. Robert Prosky was born on December 13th, 1930. In Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, Bill Bant's hometown. That's right. Robert Prosky received a degree in economics from Temple University, later worked as a bookkeeper with the Federal Reserve Bank, while taking acting classes at the American Theater Wing in New York, where he got a scholarship through a TV talent contest. After some brief work on television, he made his film debut in Thief. Other notable 80s films include Hanky Panky, Christine, The Natural, Outrageous Fortune, Broadcast News, and the great outdoors. But the movie that Robert may be most known for was when he plays the role of Jonathan Lundy in Mrs. Doubtfire. He was the CEO of the television station that Robin Williams works for. Robert passed away five days before his 78th birthday in 2008. Robert Prosky. And I believe, you know, he was a late bloomer. I think 
if I read this correctly, if I remember correctly from my research, this was his, yes, his film debut in Thief, and he was already 50. I know. I was like, whoa. Well, I have to say I look better at 50 than, than he did in this movie. So I guess all that skincare cream has really been paying off. Ladies and gentlemen, moisturize. That's right. All right, time for us to move on to facts and trivia. What are some facts and trivia we have about Thief? I think we have a lot of the same stuff, but that's okay. Oh, yeah. There's a lot, a lot on this film. Michael Mann made his directorial debut, as we know, with the TV film The Jericho Mile. This was partly shot in Folsom Prison. Mann says that influenced the writing of Thief. This is a quote. It probably informed my ability to imagine what Frank's life was like, where he was from, and what those 12 or 13 years in prison were like for him. The idea of creating his character was to have somebody who has been outside of society, an outsider who has been removed from the evolution of everything from technology to the music that people listen to, to how you talk to a girl, to what do you want with your life, and how do you go about getting it. Everything that's normal development that we experience he was excluded from by design in the design of the character and the engineering of the character. That was the idea. I love that shit, man. <laughs> I wanted to include that whole quote because that's Michael Mann's thinking. That's the character development, character establishment. Totally makes sense. Especially when, you know, we analyze that diner scene, that relationship scene between he and uh, James Kahn and Tuesday Weld. Um, so Frank's tools that he used throughout the film such as the magnetic drill uh, that was used in the opening sequence. Those were not props, but real tools, which the actors were trained on to use. The tools were supplied by real-life thieves who served as technical consultants on the film. John Santucci, the name may not sound familiar, but if you were a fan of Crime Story, he uh, played one of the main thugs in that movie, and he actually has a role in this movie. He is the uh, police officer, Arizi. So, yeah, he's a real-life thief, and uh, he was the consultant on the film. That's crazy. So when he's lugging those drills and drilling everything, that's he's using the real equipment on this. It's, there's no there's no fakeness in this movie. No fakeness. Absolutely. No fakeness. And to piggyback on that, yeah, the vault that Frank breaks into in the opening scene was a real vault purchased for $10,000, specifically so that James Conn could break into it using those real tools Bill mentioned and techniques supplied by John Santucci. Pretty cool. So Jason uh, described the uh, closing scene with Frank having the shootout, and we see Frank get shot, but at the very end, he pulls off the bulletproof vest. Well, back in 1981, bulletproof vests weren't very common, so audiences were confused about how Frank actually survived getting shot. Something that's so commonplace now, like every movie you see with cops or right. always slapping on bulletproof vests, but not so much 40 years ago. That's funny. Can you imagine being in the audience and seeing that and going, wait, what? What is he <laughs> wearing? Wait, how did, how did he survive the gunshot? I'm confused. Yeah. He had just a lot of layers. He just... Right. Yeah, that's pretty funny, man. Thief marks the first film appearance of actors Dennis Farina, William Peterson, James Belushi, and Robert Prosky, our Hey, It's That Actor. At the time, a Chicago police officer, Farina appears as a mob henchman. We know this. Uh, conversely, John Santucci, as Bill mentioned, 
plays the role of corrupt cop Eurisi, was recently paroled thief. And yeah, William Peterson plays is he like he's like the bartender. You see him for a split it's second actually. Yep. But, but I noticed him. Like I could tell oh, yeah. it was a, just a quick thing. It, it was like I caught his profile or something. I don't know what it was. But I did somewhere know in the back of my mind he had his cameo in this. That was kind of a, a debut appearance for him. But it is in that club scene when Frank goes to pick up Jesse for the date and she's refusing and he kind of manhandles her and grabs her. And there's a bartender that comes around and says, hey, get your hands off or whatever. And immediately James Conn is like, shut the hell up. Mind your own business. And that's William Peterson. Yeah, I thought going in to watch it again, I just assumed and I just forgot that Peterson was Khan's. I thought he was the Barry, not Belushi. Oh, that's sure. What, that's what I was expecting. So then when I saw Belushi in the beginning, I was like, whoa, whoa, wait, when does Peterson come in? And then it's there he is. Oh, that's it. Yeah. You, I did not you, realize he had that yeah. small of a role. It's pretty funny. So um, I was talking about when Frank was blowing everything up. So the first thing he blows up is the house. So the house that was blown up was actually a fake structure in front of the real house. Unfortunately, though, when they did blow up the house, they used a little bit too much explosive and it ended up damaging the actual house they were trying to protect. So, yeah, that house no longer exists. It had to get <laughs> torn down because the explosion kind of messed up the foundation a little bit. So if you're ever uh, location scouting and wanted to find that house from Thief, good luck. It is no longer there. It's great. Thief's moody soundscapes were composed and performed by Tangerine Dream and was their second of many notable film scores composed by the group throughout the 1980s. The film was nominated for a Razzie Award for Worst Musical Score. But that didn't deter Mann from choosing them a second time to compose the music for his next feature film, the ill-fated 1983 World War II fantasy horror, The Keep. Yeah, it was interesting because I forgot Tangerine Dream did the music for this. And I jump on IMDb real quick just to see what awards do in the notes. And then when I saw it got nominated for worst music, I'm like, oh, man, is this going to be really jarring? Is this going to take me out? I don't know what they were complaining about. It works. Works yeah. for me. Completely. Yeah, absolutely. But I found this interesting too is because you mentioned the the Razzies and then the, the Stinkers Bad Movie Awards nominated it and it got nominated for Worst Actress. Tuesday Weld got nominated for Worst Actress. She won the award for Most Annoying Fake Accent and it also got nominated for Worst On-Screen Couple. Between her and James Kahn. Wow. Oh, this is why the Bad Stinkers Awards doesn't exist anymore, because they don't know right. how to nominate <laughs> correctly. What annoying accent. I didn't detect any accent. Right. I didn't even detect, was she attempting an affectation even of any kind? I, I didn't hear anything. I mean, I don't know her true voice, to be honest. I don't know that much about Tuesday Weld, but uh, I didn't find her annoying. You know, funny enough, I was going to bring it up in additional thoughts, but I was going to ask you what you thought of her performance, because I could see, oh, after I saw it, I was like, she's just not, I mean, she's a, clearly an important character in the film. It's just, I think, a performance choice. And it, I can see how it might be off-putting to some, but after, I think, looking at it maybe from a filmmaker's perspective, I'm not sure, looking at it through the eyes 
my eyes and trying to really analyze the characters and their relationship, et cetera, and trying and feeling as though I found an understanding, I thought her performance was just fine. Like I didn't feel like it was awful or anything like that. Not deserving of any stinker or Razzie. No, it's not something I would watch and go, Oh my God. She's just totally pulling this whole movie down. That's what you would give a stinker to someone who's just dragging the movie into the dirt. But she's not doing that. No, not by any stretch. She's of playing exactly who she is. She's, she's had to have a totally rough life, and now it's been upended, kind of in a positive way, maybe because now this guy's taking her off her feet and hopefully going to give her a good life and a child and all that. But in the back of their minds, like this could blow up in my face in any second. So there's that hesitation throughout. I was kind of surprised when I saw that, and then just I was like, "Did you not watch the diner scene with the two of them?" And you're saying worst on screen couple, but. I just think, you know, I looked up her uh, filmography because I was not familiar with her as well. And she did some work and you can look it up on IMDb, of course. Uh, She's done some familiar things. But the one thing that caught my eye in her filmography was much later on when she plays Mrs. Pendergast in the film Falling Down, Mm -hmm. which I love, which is with Michael Douglas and Robert Duvall. And I'm assuming she's a little bit older at this point. She was the wife of Robert Duvall who keeps promising to retire that he's going to retire. I don't remember. I don't know if you remember that storyline from that film, but I love that movie. Not much. And I can see her now and I'm like, Oh, that is her I'm much older. Anyway, mm-hmm. uh, last bit of uh, facts and or trivia. I find this enjoyable. James Conn remembers one night where all the cops working security on the film and the quote unquote technical advisors, which we know from our research were, like ex-cons. <laughs> yes. They were all hanging out together before shooting. A lot of members from both sides had grown up together or had married into each other's families. It's just like in my neighborhood. This is the quote from James Conn. People don't realize it's not uncommon from or for one brother to be a thief and another brother to be a policeman. Now, since the statute of limitations had already been up on most of the crimes the quote-unquote advisors had committed, they would brag to the cops about how they had done it. That's just funny. There you go. So nice little network there. Yeah, right. All right. So let us move on to box office. So Thief was released on March 27th, 1981 on an estimated budget of $5.5 million. It grossed $11.5 million domestically. Unfortunately, the box office numbers for early 1981 are not available online or complete. So I have little information on how Thief did at the box office. Most box office sites seem to indicate the movie opened at $4.3 million. So moving on to reviews, when growing up in the early 80s, we'd watch sneak previews with Siskel and Ebert to hear the reviews and watch clips from upcoming releases. Their review of Thief was unanimous. Two thumbs up. Gene liked that the movie's energetic story of a professional jewel thief wasn't about the heist itself but about a man who is trapped in a grim business looking for a way to get out. Roger loved the realism of the film and enjoyed that the characters in the film were fleshed out. They also noted Robert Prosky's performance in the movie as marvelous. Rotten Tomatoes gives it a tomato meter score of 79%, and it has an IMDb rating of 7.4. So that leads us to additional thoughts and questions. Do we have any additional thoughts and questions about Thief? You know, just an additional thought for the listeners out there. For any reason you haven't seen Heat, 
I would recommend watching this film and or Heat as a double feature. Good call. So I shouldn't say and or, I should say Thief and Heat. Watch them both. You get to watch the evolution of Michael Mann. And both films are excellent in their own right. So just wanted to mention that. I didn't have a whole lot else. I mean, I just, when I was breaking down all the attractive qualities of a, a heist movie, things that attract me to the heist movie, I was thinking of everything from The Italian Job to Heat, of course, to Den of Thieves, Guilty Pleasure, to Inside Man, to Ocean's Eleven, to the movie The Score. There's so many classic foreign films as well, heist films. Do you have a favorite heist film? It's Pig Panther Count. <laughs> Why not? Um, Maybe the original Italian Job, Michael Caine. Mm-hmm. That's a fun one. Sure. I find, yeah, I find them all. I mean, there's so many of them that are, that are so fun that I like. And, you know, some of them are so over the top. But for the most part, yeah, you don't, it's very rare that you can ruin a heist film. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ocean's Eleven. Even the original, as much as that gets dogged, I still enjoy it because of the fact that they don't pull it off. The fact, gotcha. It's like one of the few times they don't pull it off. And I'm like, oh, yeah. I think that's what redeemed it for me. How about you? I'm partial to the Ocean's Eleven remake. Uh, I adore that film. Inside Man is great. Oh, yeah. That's a great one. That's a really good one. That's one that's hard to to stop watching once you've started. I mentioned Den of Thieves being a guilty pleasure. That's a fun one. I'm a Gerard Butler fan. There's some good stuff in there. And there's so many other classics. Those are just more of the recent guilty pleasure slash fun movies. Although I think Inside Man is just an all-around great movie. Yeah. So, yeah, I would say this was a fun watch. I had nothing to watch one evening, and I had come across this smaller film called Finding Steve McQueen, which stars Travis Fimmel, I think mostly known for his work on the show Vikings. And it was fun. It's got one of my uh, favorite uh, character actors, William Fickner, in it. You know who else is in it is Forrest Whitaker. I've never heard of it. Yeah, Finding Steve McQueen. It's good. I mean, I wasn't blown away, but it was still, it was entertaining. So it's a good watch. If you got nothing else going on, you know, check it out. Cool. It's from 2019. It's only a few years old. Yeah, for me, this is the only thing that I had in terms of thoughts or questions. What do you think happens to Frank after the movie? Where does he go? How does he start over? How much money did he actually have at that point? Did he have a little less than a hundred grand that he got from Leo? Probably. Yeah, plus if he had anything from other scores. Because he gave Jesse, I guess, I think it was 410 grand total, something like that. Which wasn't going to last that long because it was the driver got like 40,000 the first month, 41 the second. I'm like, uh, yeah, I'm doing the math here. That's not going to last you very long. So part of me is wondering does he go back for her thinking that he has everything cleared up? Because who's going to come after them now? I would like to think so, but yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it could go either way. Great question. Yeah, I don't have the answer. Yeah, we'll never know. <laughs> All right, so let's move on to our rating. So on a scale of one to five safes, what do you give Thief? I'm giving it four solid safes. I like to think of myself as a student of film. So I love watching this and seeing the beginnings of what would become Michael Mann's directorial career. It's 
really cool to me. James Kahn is a powerhouse in this. I love the dialogue. I love the way it looks. I love the way it sounds. And I love the way it feels. I'm simply attracted to man's style, this type of film. I've always been inspired by him. And no doubt there are and will be elements in my own filmmaking and writing that will emulate Michael Mann's style once again. And this movie generally just fires on all cylinders at all times. Two hours just fly by because I'm I'm in it. I'm in it all the way. This was a just a real pleasure to rediscover. What about you, Bill Bant? I'm with you. Four super solid. Lock them in the safe. Safes. Yep. Once again, thank God we do this podcast because I don't know when I ever would have got back to watching this movie and I, I just enjoyed it so much. Like I said, I, I watched it twice and if I had time, I would have watched it a third time before we did this. That's how much I was enjoying it. And it's like a movie that it's kind of forgotten, but yeah, you said it best. Watch, watch this and, and heat back to back. And it's a good Michael Mann 101 class right there. Boom. Just put those two on, break everything down. And they're just both enjoyable. And I, I will double down on, I think this is my favorite James Conn movie. That's great. Take us out, Bill Bant. All right. I think that about wraps it up for this week's episode. As always, thank you so much for listening. Please take the time to follow us on your preferred streaming platform. Give us a review and rate us. If you want to learn more about our show, you can visit us at all80smoviespodcast.com. Next week, we'll be discussing, as voted on by you, our listeners, at the end of last season, Jim Henson's The Dark Crystal. We hope you join us. Have a totally great week, everyone. You're marking time is what you are. You're backing off. You're hiding out. You're waiting for a bus that you hope never comes because you don't want to get on it anyway because you don't want to go anyway. Okay? Thanks for staying up with us. Good night, world.